Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. It's going to be a wonderful hour coming up. I'm so glad and excited to introduce Dr. Christian Widener to the program. He's written a book called The Temple Revealed, The True Location of the Jewish Temple Hidden in Plain Sight. He's a biblical scholar, a researcher, and an engineer. He has a passion for the scientific defense of the scriptures and biblical archaeology and the study of end times prophecy, a subject I love. I'm so glad to have him on the program. Christian, welcome. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, it's really my pleasure. And this book you uh, have written, The Temple Revealed, this is uh, not an overnight project. You've been working on this for a decade at least, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a long time. I mean, it just started as a uh, as an interest and something that, like a pebble stuck in my shoe. That <laughs> I, I love just, it. You know, kept working on. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, so it is the book, the purpose really of the book is to try to settle the question of the location of the Jewish temple. And the subtitle of the book says it's it's right there in plain sight. So tell us more. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people have debated. There's really kind of four primary locations that people have, have thought about and arguments have been, you know, uh, put forward on, on all sides. But it remains this sort of um, kind of unsettled question, except for really the predominant location, which is the Dome of the Rock. Um, I would say that's where most scholars and um, rabbis, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin that today are, have already done quite a bit to prepare um, for rebuilding the temple. They've you know, remade many of the articles for inside the temple and uh, reestablished even the Sanhedrin and priestly practices. So they've, they've done an awful lot to be prepared, but they don't have a place to, to build it. Um, and so as I started kind of listening into the arguments and reading them and thinking about them, because I was just interested, um, like any student of prophecy that sees, you know, the mention of a, of a temple, um, I wanted to know where it was mm-hmm. um, and where it might be. So, so, yeah, so when we talk about in your book in chapter two, the threshing floor is the datum. And of course, when we talk about datum, that's not, it's not the singular of, of data, right? It's an engineering term. What does that mean? That's right. Yes. So it's a, it's a reference point that you use to measure. Um, if you're like building a part, you have one reference point and then all your other measurements are taken ah, from that point. Okay. And so it's, it's an important, without that, um, you don't know what you're looking for in terms of location in any sort of precise sense. And um, we need to find things like that from, you know, sources that are very reliable. And for me, one of that, the first place you're going to look is the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and second uh, Chronicles chapter or first Chronicles, sorry, chapter three, verse one tells us that Solomon began to build the temple on Mount Moriah on the threshing floor of Aruna, the place provided by David. And so, you know, if that's where he, if Scripture tells us he built the temple, then, well, we need to look for a threshing floor. Mm -hmm. And so that started a 
kind of a, a question about what is a threshing floor and what, what should that look like. Um, and I also came across uh, some research work that had been done claiming that the flat area of bedrock underneath the Dome of the Spirits actually was the former threshing floor. Hmm. Um, and I think if that had, if that argument had fully been made um, in its day, we would have, this would already be a settled issue um, starting really back to the 80s. And it kind of um, came to a head in the uh, early 2000s. But ultimately, it, it didn't uh, win the, the argument within, you know, the scholarly community and the rabbinic community. Mm -hmm. um, the, the evidence at that time had there was more that had been assembled in favor of the other location. And sometimes, you know, it's like if you take a, a case to court, sometimes the, the guy who was right loses because he didn't prepare his case well enough. Right. Not because he was wrong or not because the truth wasn't on his side. Uh, sometimes just, you know, there's a weight of evidence going the other direction that overwhelms the truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, what happened in this case. Um, and this flat area of, of that really is a perfect threshing floor surface is actually part of the present Temple Mount platform where the Dome of the Rock is sitting. And so, honestly, it's very the reason why it's hidden in plain sight is because it looks like just part of the overall platform except when you realize that, oh, wait, but it's bedrock. Look, it's huge. That's not a paving stone. Um, and the fact that it's, it's bedrock and that it's level to the whole paving stone, this is where the engineering part of me comes out. Um, you go, how does that happen? You can't, you don't, uh, a paving stones, a platform like that, you, you level those stones um, and you, it's, it's a big job to get them all laid out and all leveled one to another. And that doesn't accidentally get leveled to bedrock. In fact, normally you build a floor like that completely on top of bedrock, unless you have a really flat area that you want to use as your reference point for setting the level um, and as one of your datums for the platform itself. And so because it's incorporated into it, it just it makes it easy to overlook, hence hidden in plain sight. Yeah. So was it the temple or, or just the altar that was built on this threshing floor? And that's another good question, um, because there's kind of some confusion over the fact that um, when we say Mount Moriah, that should point us back to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And um, Abraham, you know, was told by God to go to the area of Moriah, mm -hmm. to the mountain that he would show him and to sacrifice his, you know, his, um, his son. And, of course, we know that when he gets there, um, he doesn't actually... Um, sacrifice Isaac. God Himself provides the sacrifice, and there is a ram in the thicket that he that he sacrifices um, instead of uh, Isaac. But that tells us that it's a lonely area on Mount Moriah. Um, incidentally, that's also near Salem, where earlier in Abraham's life he had made an, a sacrifice to Melchizedek at the city of Salem. Um, that's another actual indication that. Um, some people think that it was in the city of David, but it's it's not. No, he didn't take Isaac to the city of Salem to sacrifice him. He went to a mountain that was nearby. Um, and so, anyway, this defines this Mount Moriah place where we should be looking for that that threshing floor. So when we established that the threshing floor was basically the way that the, the, the temple location was identified, 
that would mm-hmm. be that would be the definitive way that we would understand that to be identified. So the threshing floor obviously is going to be of utmost importance as we have this quest, so to speak, for this location of the temple sanctuary. Yeah, and th- there really isn't any other um, similar candidate for a threshing floor on the whole 36-acre temple mount. So all of the other views, um, none of them can say, hey, here's a threshing floor. Some people have tried to make the case that the rock under the Dome of the Rock could have been the threshing floor. Okay. Except for one big problem. It's not flat. Ah. And uh, so if you look at the surface, it's, it's got all kinds of natural rock surfaces in it, lots of cutouts. Um, I think it was used um, – you know, at one time in the past, uh, after the destruction of the temple, actually to build a pagan temple uh, by Emperor Hadrian um, in about the 130 A.D. time period. Um, but it's it's clearly not a threshing floor. And mm-hmm. so as soon as you realize it's not, the only thing that anchored the location of the temple is is this threshing floor. The, the altar, um, which I guess I, I got distracted from, um, and I'll cir- circle back to that. Uh, Isaac was was sacrificed there, but you know, so so people see, um, and even David actually sacrificed on that threshing floor um, after he bought it from from Aruna, mm-hmm. because that's where um, actually David made a census. Uh, it was a sinful thing to do because it was uh, a, a lack of faith or or some other reason that he had violated, and so there was a plague. But the the ain't the angel causing the plague stopped above the threshing floor of Arun. And because of that, um, David made a sacrifice there and God told him, this is where, you know, this is the place I want you to build, you know, the, the house, uh, for my name, but you're not going to build it. Your son's going to build it. Okay. And so he comes later and builds it, but because there were sacrifices there, people, you know, sometimes consider that, well, then the altar must have been there. Right. Um, that makes sense. But remember in the Holy of Holies, the priest would come and sprinkle the blood every year mm-hmm. um, on the holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. and that's where the, the blood was then was placed in the same place um, as the sacrifices of David and uh, Abraham. Okay, uh, Christian, let me take a short break. You are a, a student of biblical prophecy. You're going to love this book. It's called The Temple Revealed, the True Location of the Jewish Temple Hidden in Plain Sight. Dr. Christian Widener is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. Christian Widener is my guest. His book is called The Temple Revealed, the true location of the Jewish temple hidden in plain sight. Christian, I'd love for you to talk about the significance of the East Gate. Is that an original temple landmark? Yes, thank you for asking about that. Um, Because that is the other piece of the puzzle for identifying the the temple location. Um, The the reason why there's, there's not really been a definitive solution for identifying the temple before because people have all assumed that there was absolutely nothing left of the original temple that you could use as a um, And uh, really, historians and uh, archaeologists in the last century, the 20th century, 
what really had been consistently reported by earlier pilgrims, that the Golden Gate was the gate from the temple, and in fact that it was the gate that Jesus had entered on Palm Sunday wow. uh, when he came to visit the temple. And, you know, so that's an interesting, you know, debate it one way or another, but I read in Ezekiel 44, 1 and 2, and it said, I looked to the gate of the outer sanctuary that faces east, and it was shut, and it will remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, and therefore it will remain shut. And that just stuck with me. That was the pebble in my shoe. Like, you know, that looks like the Bible is saying that the east gate would be shut after Jesus entered it. Pilgrim said that was the gate. It's still walled up in stone, so that's 2,000 years later. What do you mean it's not an original gate? <laughs> Good point. Let's look at the evidence <laughs> of that, right? Like, yeah. uh, why do they say that? Um, and the further back in history I looked, the, the more accounts I saw of pilgrims reporting the gate being there and talking about it and even talking about it being a part of the temple. So then I thought, oh, that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't jive with what people are saying. I mean, they, they would make assertions like it was built by the Byzantines uh, for Emperor Heracles when he um, went and conquered the Persians and restored Jerusalem. Jerusalem actually was, was sacked in like 613, 614, somewhere around there. And they, um, you know, did damage to Jerusalem, but also took the what was thought and felt to be the the true cross of Christ at that time. And um, Heracles, within the next 15 years or so, was able to, you know, go defend the city, go back and, you know, march um, on the, the Persians and get the cross back. And he entered triumphantly into the city. And people go, see, they made the gate for him then because it lines up with the, the Holy Sepulchral Church. And, you know, that was part of his triumphal entry returning except that in the, the very stories that record that story, they tell us that when Heracles came to the city, to the outer wall, he was made forced to dismount and enter in humility because that is the gate they said that Jesus entered and he entered in humility. So, you know, you need to dismount and enter also in humility. Mm -hmm. well, so the very account tells us that the people at that time, you know, didn't just build the gate for him. They were believing that that gate was the original gate. So instead of – there's many times where people try to take a, a quote like that and use it to support a view when if you really read the, the whole quote in context, it actually refutes what they're saying. And so those are the kinds of things that I, you know, I point out in the book, and I pull that together to go, look, there's historic testimony even all the way to Josephus in 100 AD actually saying that the East Gate wasn't destroyed and that after the Romans destroyed the city – they went to the East Gate and they set up their their end signs, you know, their standards there, and they held a ceremony and made Titus, who was the the general who had conquered the city, they made him Titus Imperator. Um, and so, if they're conducting ceremonies there, you know, it remained intact. Um, and then that's also why you see these later accounts and the, all the the pilgrims are mentioning it. And so you go, okay, fine. The clincher is. In the Bible, it's it's not very clear, but it's implied that the gate was in front of the temple. Mm -hmm. um, the rabbis are not so implied. They actually have uh, Mishnah, you know, their oral tradition that record that all of the gates were aligned all the way out to the outer sanctuary um, gate, which was at that time uh, called the Shushan Gate. But it's the Golden Gate, the East Gate. There's all these different names, which is also, you know, makes it confusing. Um, but that's so then when you know that the gate was directly in front of the temple 
which also is a reasonable assumption because you look at that eastern wall, it's super steep. It's a terrible place for a gate unless there's a, you know, a requirement by design for a gate to be there. And it's this beautiful ornate gate. Um, it's very easy to see. It was associated with the temple. They also talk about that gate. Um, when, they, when the rabbis record about the gate, they say it was low. It was built low so that when the high priest looked over towards the Mount of Olives, he could see uh, the sacrifice of the red heifer. And, of course, that gate, the golden gate today, you go by down, down by steps to go out of that gate, which is walled up now. But you can actually go down the steps leading to the gate, which also meets uh, the exact descriptions of the temple gate. Hmm. All right, Christian, let me I'll make a statement, and I'd like you to respond to it. All right? Kind of like a game mm-hmm. show here. The Dome of the Rock now sits where the Jewish temple used to stand. I don't agree with that. <laughs> okay. Now I would say I would say that probably a lot of lay people and scholars would disagree with you. Yes, that's true. Okay. They they would. So now you're going to swim upstream a little bit. I can't wait to hear your position on this. Yes. Yeah, so um, all of the arguments for that Dome of the Rock uh, location um, rely on secondary inferences. None of them have any primary evidence to support that conjecture. Um, Unlike this northern location that actually has a flat threshing floor type surface that's consistent with what we would expect for a threshing floor um, that we know is bedrock and predates all of the structures that are currently on the Temple Mount today uh, because of that. And this Golden Gate is an actual, again, another landmark. In fact, inside of it are two gate posts and archaeologists Dean, uh, I mean, Dr. Lean Rittmeyer has, you know, really written to, to bring this out. This is his point. Um, but that when you see these giant megalithic posts, one's 15 feet tall, one's 11 feet tall. These are stones that are five, six feet wide, uh, three to four feet deep. So you weigh 25 tons. I mean, these are stones that are literally the size of the stones at Stonehenge. Wow. That are gate posts for this stone. That's crazy. So when people think like, hey, that's just a new gate, you're like, no way, this is a megalithic gate that's of the same style and um, type of workmanship as the whole Temple Mount itself. Um, So again, you have archaeology, you have these historic reports, and the real clincher is that these two things are aligned, and that um, in order for that flat area of bedrock to be part of the temple, it has to be in a direct line with that golden gate, and it has to be the right distance away from the Golden Gate, because in front of the Holy of Holies was the holy place, and then you had the Court of Israel, the Court of the Women, so you have all this temple structure that, that was in front of the Holy of Holies, and there has to be enough space for that. So I, you know, being an engineer and a little bit of a nerd, <laughs> what's the probability, mm-hmm. you know, what's the probability of that happening by accident? And it, it, I calculate it's a 0.07% chance, and you're like, okay. Well, that means there's a 99.93% chance it's not an accident. Wow. And so n- now we're starting, like, if, if you had a murder weapon and it had somebody's fingerprints on it and it was a 99.93% match for, you know, the guy that's being accused of the crime, would you go, well, I don't know, there's a 0.07% chance it wasn't him, we better acquit him. Mm-hmm. You're going to go, no, that's, you know, that's good enough, 993 that's a you know just about a perfect match, um, and the same thing. It's not reasonable to say that something like that would just happen by accident. 
especially given all of the other um, evidence that you can assemble around that, you know, the morphology of the rock, um, you know, the fact that it's, it's um, clearly predates the, the platform that Dome of Rock sets on, that tells you it's something that was visible um, all the way back to, you know, it's part of the mountain, so that means it was visible in the time of Abraham and David. So, you know, you, you have a lot of circumstantial evidence that also backs up um, that direct evidence that you're observing. Mm-hmm. Now, Christian, I know the Holy Temple should be rebuilt, but I bet there's a lot of opinions over exactly how that should be accomplished. Oh, yeah. And in fact, um, one of the, on my video, one of the most controversial things, or one of the controversial comments that I get back um, is, you know, aren't we the temple, uh, Mm. now living stones, and, Mm -hmm. you know, isn't it really basically an abomination to ever build another temple again? Um, And I've written a blog on this about the seven temples found in the Bible, Um, and really the idea is, you know, yes, we are, that scripture affirms that we are a spiritual temple, but there are spiritual realities and physical realities, and there are things that are happening, you know, there are past temples, there's future temples that are described. Um, there's a temple that's described during the entire uh, millennial period. Uh, there's a temple that's going to come down from heaven. There's an eternal temple that's always been in heaven, um, God's temple. So I think we need a, a broader understanding of, of what, you know, temple really means. What would it mean to have another temple rebuilt um, as a house of prayer for all nations, as uh, prophesied in Isaiah, I think, 56, 7, if I'm remembering that correctly. And so, you know, it's God that's saying, you know, what he's going to do. We're trying to recognize that and look for it. Um, I certainly don't want to be in a position of opposing the things that he said, you know, he's planning to do. So I I see that being described. Now, I may not know perfectly how that's going to be carried out, because while I believe every word of Scripture will be fulfilled, I do not think that I have a big enough imagination to know exactly how he's going to literally fulfill his word in the future, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I think we can we can agree on that. And so then, you know, we're, we're saying, hey, I think this is what it's going to be. Um, the book really focuses on what was and points out a lot of the scriptures that are foretold for the future and describes some scenarios in which it it would be possible to rebuild it. Um, and then I think, you know, the rest is, is open for, you know, kind of discussion and certainly watching um, as we move forward in the prophetic timeline. Dr. Christian Widener has been my guest. We'll take a short break and we'll be joined by Tom Stewart.
Welcome back to the show. Uh, you know, I first saw my guest on my television in my living room many years ago. He's a veteran broadcast journalist. He's a documentary filmmaker. He does communication strategy. He just does it all. And he has been involved with radio and television uh, for his whole career. And for that reason, I would really love to hear about his whole career. He is a government accountability reporter. How would you like that title over at the... <laughs> Over at the Center of the American Experiment, Tom Stewart is my guest. Tom, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here, Bill. That's like the biggest title I've ever heard, Government Accountability Reporter. (laughs) How does one even do that? I'm afraid I can't do it justice. Uh, There's just too much to do. But, uh, no, it's it's actually a lot of fun. You know, it's just poking around. Okay. you know, how, how our uh, tax dollars, um, you know, what they go to from time to time, uh, the, not necessarily the uh, place you might uh, hope for. <laughs> yeah. So did you uh, grow up as a curious kid that wanted to know what was what? Well, I, in my family background on my dad's side, there, there's a, a strong uh, current of journalism. My grandfather was a journalism prof at the U uh, back in the <laughs> 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Wow. He started the news service there. His wife was a reporter. I've got a picture of her in 1917 at a press conference, believe it or not. Uh, and and so I, I don't know how much that influenced me one way or another, but but I, it was always in my blood. It really was. And then what got you interested in television? Well, I uh, first of all started off in radio uh, here at Minnesota, then called educational radio. I quickly um, uh, moved out to Washington, D.C. and worked for National Public Radio for for a while on the uh, program, mm-hmm. All Things Considered, still on the air. Uh, and, and then and then I, I really got into documentary um, production there. I did half hours for All Things Considered, uh, uh, you know, in the U.S. and even abroad for a year. I was uh, I was also uh, doing doing uh, uh, documentary producing, and it was just a blast, you know, uh, um, uh, doing it with sound, radio, and uh, and then and then um, after um, three four years of doing that, um, I uh, decided to uh, see if I could make the transition into television. That's that's amazing because I have a face for television. I just can't get on it. <laughs> I don't know about that. But you've got these chiseled good looks, and I can see why they were interested in you right away. Now, some of these uh, documentary things you've done have been completely fascinating, and I would love to talk about some of your career highlights. Uh, like, how about covering the fall of the Berlin Wall? How, how cool was that? Oh, brother. Uh, I, was, I remember I was sitting in an editing uh, bay, uh, WCCO television when <laughs> the uh, assignment editor and the news director came in and asked me if I would like to uh, uh, to to get on an airplane immediately. Hmm. Um, can't remember. I'm sure I got to go uh, pack a bag, but uh, yeah, that that was the thrill of a lifetime for sure. I mean, it was uh, it was uh, we went to West Berlin. Um, we, we, um, there were no cars for rent. So I rented somehow a van with, you know, one of those ones that seats about 15 people, um, <laughs> driving around Berlin. Um, I, I, I remember parking it for some reason. It wasn't, you know, that we, 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 uh, were able to park on the street and then 
the the thing I did was uh, with with um, the fantastic photographer um, who later uh, was photo chief at WCCO. He's still there, I believe, Bill Kruzkop. Uh, we just um, as people were coming through the wall, even though it was still up and it was still a checkpoint. We went the other way. <laughs> All the people were draining out of East Berlin, coming to the West Berlin. We went the opposite way with our cameras and just, you know, uh, documented uh, what was going on. Did uh, 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 met people, went into their apartments, they, uh, uh, drove in their Trabants, these little uh, four-cycle engines. I think there were something in the these little cars uh, with spewing. Um, blue smoke uh, <laughs> so we went the opposite way of the human tide that was really coming through at first so that we could document uh and and just see what life was like over there uh to, to a great extent and talk to people but we also and we did uh our, you know back then we had a, a unit called dimension and it was longer in-depth um highly produced uh pieces generally four or five minutes long we did four of those out of uh, uh, West Berlin in um, at that time in just uh, three four days maybe, and and um, documenting uh, and talking about uh, we yeah, the the last person to get shot trying to get over the wall things like that and uh, as well as celebrating of course what was going on it was it was mm-hmm. an amazing moment uh, for sure. So Tom, you landed in West Berlin. Tell me what your adrenaline is doing. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where we're going to go, what we're going to do, because we really – I'd been there before, believe it or not, with okay. a Bethel, Bethel uh, College uh, drama tour. And we went to a lot of air bases, uh, including in East Germany wow. at the time. Yeah, and, and – um, but uh, – and so I'd been through Checkpoint Charlie, uh, you know, as an 18-year-old or something, so I didn't, you know, really know what I was doing. But at least I had – some sense of what what was going on over there, what it was like, and it was grim then. Uh, so when we hit the ground, that was what I had to go on. Of course, uh, I'd done some uh, best I could uh, um, uh, research. We didn't have the internet mm-hmm. uh, on the way over. I remember I had a lot of newspapers, the New York Times, I'm sure, um, and all the rest of them, uh, trying to, you know, uh, uh, do my background the best I could on the fly, and uh, and then. Just get over to that uh, counter and find um, find a um, you know a car the best, as quickly as possible. And and my wife and I and, uh, had done uh, you know a fair amount of traveling internationally as well too. So that it wasn't completely foreign to me. But uh, yeah, the adrenaline was pumping, <laughs> and I also worried about uh, you know I. Uh, can I get this done? Are we who? Who are yes. we going to find? You're always wondering who are you going to interview? Is they're going to speak English? Are you going to, you know, are we going? Is the is the um, are we going to get the equipment set up in our hotel room and will it work? Will we get the signal off through CBS to back home? You know, uh, because there were all kinds of people from other stations, CBS stations around the country as well, using uh, their facilities. So it's just a whole bunch of stuff that came together and. Uh, it really did come together. It was it was a fantastic memory. Yeah, Tom, I'm looking at a, a scale, and zero is cautious and 10 is fearless. Where do you put yourself on this scale? No, I don't know. I'm, I'm certainly more cautious the older I get. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, at, the, at the, you know, I, I guess I'd probably an eight. Okay. I don't know. 
I would yeah, think you'd have to be as a eight. reporter. Yeah, yeah, and and I had you know uh, I had things happen uh, that that uh, you know along the way that I don't know if you want me to get into it, but I I do. Uh, I I when I started at KSTP, I came back from the East Coast. I was at KSTP Television, and um, for starters, they send you you know you work on the weekends uh, for for a while, um, and then I got into special projects and started a documentary unit there actually, but. Um, I, I was sent up north on a Sunday morning. Uh, there was a plane down south of uh, uh, southwest of Duluth in the woods. Uh, certainly, there were casualties. There were no roads to it, and all the other choppers from the other stations were waiting about three, four miles away. I said to our pilot, "Why don't we just hover over the area? You couldn't get to it any other way. Uh, they they were bringing uh, the uh, uh, emergency people in by horseback. I will get out of the helicopter." And uh, you'll hand me the camera, and then my, uh, and then the photographer will get out. Now, I didn't have that much experience in helicopters at the time, <laughs> and didn't know what I was talking about. But the pilot did it, and he. So when I held on to the, um, you know, the uh, the chopper leg there, uh, he felt that and thought a wind had come up and gunned it. He was going straight up in the air, oh, no. full blast. Oh, I no. was holding on. Okay. <laughs> Um, and we hit, I estimated 30 to 35 feet immediately. And I was then holding out one arm oh my. and I, I realized, I, I remember just I, the Lord or some, either coming through to me saying, drop now or you're dead in one second. And, uh, I dropped, fell 30, 35 feet, um, holding, <laughs> I remember it took a long time to get there just the way they say it does. Uh, and holding my uh, knees together, uh, bent, because <laughs> I'd uh, read somewhere that that's what you do when you're heading down like that, and slammed into the uh, swamp. It was a swamp. There were all kinds of dead trees there, of course, uh, that I didn't that I missed. But if you've seen any northern Minnesota swamps, they're everywhere usually, the black spruce and so on. And I was stunned, of course, and then I started you know feeling my bones and everything and I, they all worked and i looked down and i was up to my knees the swamp had really cushioned the blow so um just silly yeah that was that was not a smart thing to be doing but uh you know um the, uh, the, the that so that's the kind of you know things you do sometimes when you're younger and don't you just want to you know get the job done and move on or or beat the other guys for that matter you know i gotta admit that's that's uh, that. That's also been part of the motivation in journalism over the years. But the Lord brought me through that, and uh, that's certainly one of the most harrowing, dumb things I ever did. <laughs> well, I would imagine the the force of the chopper lifting up quickly was starting oh, to have a, a tremendous <laughs> gravitational pull on one Tom Stewart, and thinking, how long could you hold on anyway? Well, I was talking. I was. Because I didn't have much experience at that time in helicopters, yeah. uh, I was I was talking I was looking right at the photographer's boot in my face. His <laughs> okay. door was open. Yeah. I figured, well, he's going to tell the pilot, and that he can hear me. I know. No, you can't hear anything in a helicopter, even with the uh, cans on and uh, the headphones on, and uh, 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 you know, it's things like that that I really, really was naive about. And uh, um, so, yeah, it was it was. Um, that that was a very uh, terrifying moment, that's for sure, and it was of my own making. <laughs> Tom, did you have to remind people that you were the on-air talent and you're not the one that's supposed to get hurt ever? 
<laughs> well, and in, in a news crew, I always take pride and took pride in uh, carrying the tripod, which sure. was really heavy back then, and uh, and and uh, pulling my share of the weight. So I always looked at myself as one of the um, the, the 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 crew to be uh, you know just to fit in better, and that's just the way I, I kind of look at things yeah. anyway. So. No, I didn't. <laughs> you're you're one of the good men in the business, so I appreciate that oh, comment. There's, there's lots of them, yep. Yeah, yep. I appreciate that. I'm going to take a little break. Tom Stewart is my guest. Uh, he's a government accountability reporter, but he's got quite a career in uh, broadcast journalism and documentary filmmaking and a communications strategist. After a short break, we'll be back with lots more. So glad to be having Tom Stewart as my guest today. He's a veteran broadcast journalist and documentary filmmaker. And Tom, I was thinking of this uh, project you did with the Animal Planet Network. I would love to hear more about the very first footage in the wild of the of the endangered Sumatran tiger and Sumatran rhino. Well, it almost never happened on either end of the, uh, the shoot. I went to Sumatra in Indonesia uh, three times for three weeks at a time. The first time uh, at the check, uh, checking in uh, upon landing at the Jakarta airport, they took me in a back room because we didn't really have the proper permit. And I had $10,000 cash on me. A guy, you know, heavily armed um, uh, was was back there with me and demanded uh, cash. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> I remember <laughs> giving him Two two and a half thousand dollars, but I made sure it was uh, converted into local rupiah, the local uh, 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 currency, because it's you know dollars are what everybody wants. At least I thought, oh, at least he's going to have to deal with rupiah, and I got a receipt for it. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, and then we went about our, our business uh, back in um, uh, in in Sumatra, which is not uh, far from. Uh, um, uh, uh, from uh, Java and, and from Jakarta, uh, but we were in a, a jungle camp um, uh, called Wicombus, actually run by uh, a guy from the Minnesota Zoo, uh, the late Ron Tilson, just a, a phenomenal guy who was doing uh, research and uh, preservation work with a crew um, uh, on the Sumatran tiger, which is a species of tiger, but at the time there, they estimated about 400 left. Oh, what a marvelous animal, beautiful animal. And uh, it had never been, you know, they had them in zoos trying to um, uh, reproduce, uh, which they had not done successfully at the time. They have subsequently. Uh, But but, um, zoos around the world were all part of funding this. And so we set up cameras in uh, the jungle along trails that we knew they used that would be set off with with movement. the, one of the problems with that was was that wild elephants, very dangerous and everywhere there, hate the sound of those cameras when they would go off and uh, the red light. And I'm looking at one of them right now that was stomped by one. It's up on my wall, <laughs> still with the mud from Sumatra all over the camera, uh, which was destroyed. But the tape inside, we could see the elephant's reflection in it. Oh, funny. Uh, and that was in the documentary. But ultimately, right at the very end uh, of our uh, time there and our third trip, 
we got uh, you know 15 seconds I think uh, of of uh, of one of these uh, cats um, for the first time ever, and that was a very exciting moment that was in certainly in the program. Um, we we had also at that time the the uh, we we got the first footage ever of something called the hairy rhino, the Sumatran rhinoceros, which is even more endangered. 150 were around at that time. I don't know how many now. Again, just a fantastic, uh, unique animal. Uh, so we did a subsequent documentary on on the uh, Sumatran rhino because we already had the footage for that and uh, the dangers uh, that that faced. Um, and 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 throughout these woods and the jungles, there's there's a lot of uh, poaching going on. So we we had definitely, especially that last trip, we had an armed guard with us. Not that we were personally you know, uh, concerned, but, but they felt better at least having, having that there. And, um, it was also a very politically, uh, a charged time that the last week I was there was a uh, Suharto. The uh, leader was overthrown and, uh, hundreds of people died. Uh, we were waiting in, in Jakarta to get out of the country. Uh, and, and also though, I still didn't have my footage, my aerials, I waited till the end. I was uh, going to go on an Australian helicopter uh, across from Jakarta over to uh, to, to Sumatra. That's the last thing we're going to do with figure this operator. Well, it wasn't. Everything was grounded then because of the political unrest. But we paid a little more for our um, the privilege of using the chopper and uh, kept. We literally had to keep down on the floor when we refueled. Uh, but they agreed to go up. I remember we paid six grand. Wow. Um, and and uh, we went across, got our aerials of the uh, the crews out in the uh, jungle uh, from a t- uh, ahead or overhead, and got that. Made our way to the airport, which was here. It, it didn't turn out to be harrowing for us because our cab drivers uh, really knew their way around. But but people got stopped. We heard subsequently, and you know, tossed out of their cars and so on. It was a very so politically, and I had all these tapes. I mean, these were. This was everything, you know. I had the tapes of that, of that footage we're talking about. That's what I was worried about: getting that carted out of there safe and sound after all the time and trouble that uh, had gone into the project. Right. But just wonderful people. And I just want to add one really quick thing: when I was out there at the uh, base camp, uh, it was the early on. I heard some hymns being sung, and I didn't know who's out here, you know. It, I, it turned out there was a little can, a little uh, a, a place for for people to stay, and this was a um, this was a group of uh, native uh, uh, Indonesians who were Christians, young people. It was oh. some kind of youth retreat. I have a picture of it that I saw recently um, of, of us there. We, you know, um, I don't know, remember how well we communicated, but uh, it was a very moving moment for me. It was wonderful. Wow. So, Tom, yeah. are you setting up cameras in the jungle at night and then staying at the embassy suites overnight, or are you <laughs> sleeping in the jungle well, with one eye open? Well, we we did stay out a couple of times in the jungle, and we did hear tigers. <laughs> yeah. And we saw prints. We saw prints fairly nearby. Now You saw what? But, but uh, tiger prints, you know, oh. fairly nearby our camp. I thought you meant but... the musician prints. <laughs> right. And... And uh, but 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 generally we stayed in the uh, base camp, uh, which was a perfectly fine uh, uh, set of buildings that the uh, scientific team stayed at. They found room for us. I was in a, a separate uh, building, and uh, there were a lot of geckos in there. Uh, I remember, 
Um, and uh, elephants uh, would come around once in a while, but uh, that was about it for uh, what we – and monkeys all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I could sleep up till the get-goes, but then you said monkeys. I'm not sleeping. <laughs> There's no way I'm sleeping with monkeys around. Yeah, it was fun. It was so, uh, so you know, I, 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 you, you look back and appreciate it more, I think, with time and age. Yeah. Now, I don't want to change gears too quickly, but you've got uh, some struggles uh, going on with your health, and I, I know that you're open ab- about talking about this, so I'd appreciate if you would uh, share a little. Sure. Uh, three years ago here, uh, in about a week or so, uh, I was diagnosed out of the blue with uh, uh, stage 4 lung cancer. Wow. So uh, uh, I had no symptoms. Uh, I still have no symptoms. That is, I don't wheeze and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And that's the dangerous thing about lung cancer. It's uh, You don't have to be a smoker. Uh, more and more non-smokers do get, are getting it. It's the leading cause of cancer deaths by far in the country um, and in the world. Uh, and uh, I was diagnosed with an, a tumor in my uh, upper right lobe of my lung, and also um, they had spread to one other place, my liver. Uh, and, and so we, uh, you know, Colleen, my wife and I, uh, um, took, um, you know, uh, started doing our due diligence, uh, told the kids, we have, uh, three kids, Tommy, Jack, and Annie, uh, very somber, sober times. We had, um, and it was right around Easter time and we go to Westwood community church. We had an anointing service, um, the night before Easter with senior leadership and friends there. Uh, and took it to the Lord and um, and to the scientists and doctors and um, we we um, uh, I wound up down at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston mm-hmm. um, where they're uh, they they're very aggressive uh, if you uh, have uh, three or fewer places it's spread they go after it and if it's under control in the rest of your body which uh, it, it has been. They go after each time it pops up uh, in a little spot here or there, as long as, as, long as it's limited. And that, uh, that has gotten uh, better results uh, for, for patients overall, generally. And so I've been through a lobectomy. They took out immediately, took out my upper right lobe. I've had a lot of radiation to that area. It's been clear ever since. My liver, I've had, uh, uh, that's where, where it's really tough to get rid of it. I had major liver surgery a year ago, again at Easter. <laughs> and uh, 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 unfortunately, it took, it got rid of 95% of the cancer in my body. But unfortunately, some spots started showing up on my liver again uh, back in uh, September. So I, until then, I'd just been taking a targeted therapy pill, mm-hmm. they call it. A pill, uh, one of, you know, one of them is experimental. That I was on for 18 months until last October. I mean, even though I have a very rare mutation, the Lord has found a way to to pat, match us up with something that that has been effective. And so, um, it, it, I went on chemo for the first time. It's not what chemo used to be. They combine it with immunotherapy, targeted therapy. It's used commonly now as a tool to then get you through and stop whatever is happening with uh, uh, if it's effective. And then and then. Uh, right now, it's it's been um, it's been very effective. I've been on, I'm on now what they call maintenance doses. I'm feeling quite well. I do I still work half time, which is all I ever planned to work at my age, <laughs> and uh, uh, enjoying it. I'm physically active. 
I can't, I don't have as much energy and strength as I used to have, but I, I, I live a very, very normal life. I mean, God has been good to us. And, uh, and, and so uh, I go, I get infusions every three weeks. Um, and, and then every, uh, you know, a couple of months or so I get, I get a, a scan and a checkup to see if it's uh, still effective or not. I got the next one coming up here in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and if not, we uh, they they have uh, already modeled my rare mutation, my genetics. Their work, they're uh, lining that up against uh, uh, chemicals and drugs that are in uh, in development or already exist. We already know what I'll probably go on if and when this treatment starts to falter. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an amazing time to be uh, to to have lung cancer or any other cancer really uh, because of the exciting, uh, amazing things. Uh, that uh, uh, the the doctors and scientists are doing to alleviate uh, suffering and and you know disease. I, yeah. I've just seen. I, I'm I'm grateful beyond measure that we even found this and that uh, we've been able to get to this point. The Lord yeah. has been very good to us. Yeah, amazing career and powerful testimony, Tom Stewart. Thank you so much for doing the show. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. You know that means time to ring the bell. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.